Uh, we want to welcome you to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing faith and building community and the hope of Jesus. You know, today we're continuing in our series, the last couple of, of sermons in our series, The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus, where, where we've explored some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible. And through this series, we've discovered this incredible and radical love of Jesus that is woven through every page of the Bible's history. Now, today we're going to continue our look at the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet, again, who prophesied to the exiles in Babylon. His ministry began uh, sometime before the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, before the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. And, and Ezekiel prophesied to these people, to these people who had been taken in, in the first wave of exiles sometime around 605 B.C., and so he prophesied uh, for quite a bit of time, he prophesied for about 22 years, covering six major different visions that, that are in the book of Ezekiel. And, and we found out in our first uh, sermon of the series here for Ezekiel that, that he had originally been a priest and, and he was going to become this, uh, this priest in, in, the, in the line of priests in the temple, but he was taken away. And so a lot of his dreams were shattered, but, but Ezekiel was then given a new call to prophesy to the nations and uh, a difficult call we, we find throughout his book, but a call that was so important to the people that were in exile in Babylon at the moment. But today we're going to look at an interesting proverb that we find in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18. And this is a proverb that the people of Judah had. They had this in Babylon, and, and we're going to find God's response to that proverb in Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 1. should be available on the screen for you if you want to follow along. should be available at the bottom of the screen if you're watching online. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, starting in verse 1, says, The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 2, God is speaking. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The proverb is, The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Verse 3, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me. The parents as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Interesting response. Uh, verse 5, especially in the context of this proverb, we're probably wondering what does this proverb mean? We'll get to it in a, in a second. Uh, but verse 5 says, Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines, at these idol shrines, or look to the idols of Israel. He's not, he does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. A very, uh, a very important uh, religious uh, thing that, that people used to do back then was not to do that because part of it might have been uh, attributed to idol practices or to pagan worship. Uh, verse 7, he says, He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy, clothing for the needy. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from lending from them. Rather, he withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. This righteous man follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Verse 10, another example. Suppose, though, he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father himself has not done any of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and the needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at interest and he takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not. 
Because he has done all of these detestable things, he has to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. But, verse 14, another example. Suppose this son, the, the wicked son, the son of the righteous man, suppose the righteous man's grandson, the wicked man's son, has a son who sees all the sins that his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for his loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sins. He will surely live. But his father, though, will die for his own sins because he has practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, verse 19 says, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all of my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against the wicked. It's an interesting passage. And so this proverb that we read at the very beginning says, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does this mean? In, in Hebrew, it's, it's a pretty strange phrasing. Uh, it, it actually translates loosely something to like this, uh, literally. We're not actually translating it yet, but literally transliteration says something like this. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are made dull. That's what the Hebrew is. And so we in, interpret this to mean, this is my interpretation of it and, and others as well. Um, I'm going to translate it a bit more a bit more common language. The parents eat sour grapes and the children's mouths pucker. That's, that's, a, that's a good translation. The idea is that the, the parents, obviously eating sour grapes. Have you guys ever eaten a sour grape? Anything really sour? Like, not those sour candies that claim that they're sour, but like really, really sour. And you're just like, your teeth like back here, like by your molars are just like clenched and like tight. And, and, and it's an amazing feeling if you like sour food. If you don't, it's awful. Um, but this is kind of the idea that it's trying to portray is that their parents are eating these sour things. And instead of the parents receiving the natural repercussions or, or the feeling of sourness, the children are then feeling it. So essentially what the proverb really means is that what the parent does carries on in the manifestation of consequences for the children. That's what the proverb says. This is different from cause and effect. Okay? Cause and effect means that if you do something, there's an effect for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, but this is different from that. This idea, rather, is that there is a collective responsibility. That's what the proverb is saying. There is a collective responsibility among the people. So God responds, rather, with an example of a father. He says, well, suppose there's this father who's righteous. He does all of these things. But his son is unrighteous, does all of these things. And then the grandson is righteous, who does all of these things. And then essentially, God says this. He says, listen, the unrighteous son, he's not going to live just because his father was righteous. In turn, the grandson is not going to die just because his father was unrighteous. The basic idea that God is trying to tell these people is that, man, is, is how you live as an individual is the measure by which you're going to be judged. So if a person lives unrighteously, they receive death. If a person lives righteously, they receive life. How your parents lived, how your ancestors lived, bore no consequence on the judgment placed on the children. You might be wondering, what does all of this matter? Well, here's our first lesson today. Our first lesson is this. We have to take, or we must take, responsibility. 
We have to take responsibility for ourselves, for our actions. You see, God assures Israel and Ezekiel that the saying that this proverb really holds no validity. It holds no water. The idea of this proverb is that guilt was corporate, that guilt was transferable through the generations. In other words, one person could be legally, both spiritually and judicially, could be legally responsible for the sins or the wrongs that their parents or ancestors had committed. In fact, it was a very common practice in the ancient East for someone to take vengeance on a person's family as well as the guilty person. So for example, say you were, you were the guilty person, you committed murder, you killed someone, someone's son, someone's father, someone's brother, sister, mother, whatever, you killed someone, that person might take vengeance and not just take your life, but also take the life of your parents or the life of your children. That was a common practice back in the East. In even some of the Bible passages, we find that these verses, that some of the authors have the same mentality, that they allude to this. They believe that some of the punishment that Israel experiences was because of the sins of the predecessors or the ancestors. But what God is really saying is that that's not the case. This sin, this corporate responsibility and shame doesn't pass on. But really what the proverb was trying to convey and what the people were trying to hold on to by believing this proverb is that they were trying to hold on to the idea that they could shift responsibility. Are you guys following? They're trying to shift responsibility. The children are suffering presently and they want to absolve themselves of their guilt by claiming that they weren't guilty, but rather their ancestors were guilty. Well, I'm not responsible for what is happening because my parents did that. My parents were sinful. My parents were unrighteous. My parents were wicked. And so all the, the, the bad things that I'm experiencing currently are a result of what they did, not what I'm doing. I'm innocent. And so even then, some people in Jerusalem, they denied their sins. They said, no, what we're doing is is fine. And you remember, we read passages before that Ezekiel calls them out. Listen, you're practicing idol worship. You're sacrificing your children. You're doing all of these wrong things. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're good. We're good. What's happening is actually our parents' fault. We're passing the blame. And some of them believed at the destruction at the hands of Babylon that Jerusalem and Judah was experiencing was the fault of their ancestors, not their fault. And so God very directly informs them through Ezekiel. He says, no, that's not the case. Sin isn't passed on corporately. Yes, There are consequences and events that are set in motion because of sin. It always happens. There's there's natural repercussions and and cause and effect. Uh, But God is telling people, listen, he says, this is not about cascading repercussions. They actually exist. Yes, if you do something wrong, there are going to be repercussions. If you lie to someone, you're going to break trust. That's natural. That's what's going to happen. He says, but listen, he says, what your parents have done are actually not affecting what you're doing right now. What you're experiencing is not because of your parents. And so if we set a poor, uh, as parents, if, if, if those of you who are parents, if you set a poor example for your children in behavior, your children may pick up the example, right? Or you try to model better behavior. The faults of the parents or the failures of the parents can actually certainly be passed on to the children. If parents are abusive, manipulative, destructive, children may either turn out the same or they may suffer other lasting psychological consequences. We understand that, not just spiritually, but psychologically. We understand that scientifically, that hurt people hurt other people. You guys follow, right? There is no denying that how we live undoubtedly can influence future generations for better or for worse. However, what God is saying is this. The legal and spiritual repercussions don't get passed on. That's important. The legal and spiritual repercussions don't get passed on. Sin is personal. It's not 
corporate. A group can sin. Sinful behaviors can be passed on, but every individual is responsible for their own actions. Every individual is responsible for their own sin. See, the people, they wanted to wash their hands of what they were experiencing. They wanted to say, listen, we're in exile because of our parents. We're in exile because of what they did. This oppression, this slavery, it's happening not because of what we're doing, but because of what they did. And, and, and yes, much of what had happened with Babylon was a result of these events that cascaded and, and, and all of these parents and all these kings that made really poor choices. But their present lack of deliverance, listen to this because this is important. The present lack of deliverance was not a result of people's sin in the present or, or, or in the past. It was a result of people's sin in the present. You see, God is always willing to step in and rescue his people when they are willing to turn to him. That's what Jeremiah had been preaching this entire time. This is Jeremiah before the people were even exiled. He kept saying, listen, repent, turn from your ways. This is what's going to happen if you don't choose better. Your parents chose wrong, learn from their mistakes, do better. God is willing to step in and rescue you if you're willing to turn to him, but they didn't. They didn't turn to God. Then they were exiled. And then in exile, they're saying it wasn't our fault. It was our parents' fault. They're the ones that caused all of this that happened to us. And, and this is the story. This is the lesson that we learn from this, this prophecy here that God gives Ezekiel is that we cannot cast blame on others or on someone else. Listen, I certainly believe that God sees a bigger picture. I certainly believe that God considers the environments, the circumstances that may have led us into sin, but we are ultimately responsible for the choices that we make. And with that responsibility comes the responsibility to repent, or, or rather the opportunity to repent for our own actions. We have to take responsibility for our sin. We have to then seek forgiveness for the choices that we make, regardless of where those behaviors were learned from, regardless of whether that environment had set us up for failure. Even when our present sin is a result of broken families or relationships, we have to take responsibility or at least acknowledge responsibility for the, for the contribution for the choices that we have made. In my, in my conflict resolution class back in my, in my undergrad, there was a phrase that, that stuck out to me um, constantly. It's about like mediating. And it says, even if you're responsible for only 2% of the conflict, you're responsible for 100% of your 2%. Did you hear that? Even if you're only responsible for 2% of the conflict, you're 100% responsible for what you have contributed to the conflict, Right? And so the same thing can happen spiritually. We can blame everyone else. We can say, oh, well, I just fit into the wrong crowd. Oh, well, well I learned this behavior from my parents. Oh, all, all these different excuses. Sure, definitely God takes that into account. And I think God has a lot of grace for us. But even if it's only 2% our fault, we're 100% responsible for that 2%. Are you following? Right? So we have to stop blaming others. We have to stop blaming our circumstances. God can bring healing. God does bring healing. He brings healing through professionals, through friends, sometimes even through divine and miraculous intervention. But in order to find that healing, in order to receive that healing, we have to be willing to own up to the sins. We have to be willing to acknowledge what needs fixing, right? So we have to take responsibility and come to repentance. Verse 21, I'm going to keep reading here. Verse 21 and 24 says this, 
But if a wicked person turns away from all of their sins that they have committed and keeps all of my decrees and does what is just and right, that person who was previously wicked will surely live, they will not die. None of the offenses that they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things that they have done and they will live. Verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and when they live? Verse 24, but if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, the one that had been forgiven, will they live? No, none of the righteous things that person had done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness or their unfaithfulness they are guilty of and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. So God informs Ezekiel here that each person, again, is responsible for your own choices. Guilt is not corporate, it's, it's individual. If a righteous man continues to be righteous, he will live. If a wicked man continues to be wicked, he will die. That's the fruit of sin. That's what sin brings. Sin brings nothing else but death. But he says, but if a righteous person turns to wickedness, he's responsible for that guilt. If a wicked man repents and turns from his wickedness, that person is then forgiven. In other words, this one's important. In other words, our lives aren't a scale of good and bad. It isn't a system of points and demerits. Our life's worth isn't measured by how much good we do versus how much bad we do, but rather it's measured by whether we come to repentance. This is huge. This is huge. And this is our second lesson for today. Our second lesson is this. Salvation isn't a scale. Salvation isn't a scale. You see, in ancient Egyptian mythology, when a person went to the afterlife, their heart was weighed. And it was weighed against a feather that represented order and truth. And this, in this Egyptian mythology, you came before all of these elders and you confessed to not committing any of these lists of wrongs that they would bring before you. And, and then your heart was weighed. You would say, no, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And then you put out your heart on the scale and then it was weighed. If you were found righteous, i.e. if your heart did not weigh more than the feather, you entered into eternal life. If your heart weighed more and you were found unrighteous that you had lied, you had committed these wrong things, this weird like dog crocodile thing named Amamit would eat your heart and you would die. <laughs> Pretty intense. And if you've ever seen the show, The Good Place, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that TV show. There's a show called The Good Place. And there's a very similar premise in that show, nothing with dog crocodiles eating your heart, but, but rather it's this idea that your life is measured by a score, right? Your evil deeds give you negative scores. Your good deeds give you positive scores. Every single little deed is counted for or against you. Everything. And so I'll give you this, this is not in my notes, but I'll give you this hilarious example that they give. Um, they give, uh, one, of the, I, one of the actions was buying avocados. And it's like, oh, that's, that's not that bad. It's like, no, buying avocados is a negative 500 score. You're like, what, why? And then they explained it, well, okay, well, if you buy an avocado, then you're supporting this, this specific type of industry that is deforesting other industries, that is consuming so much water, that is causing all of these droughts in California and Mexico, and so all these people that are experiencing this drought, that are dying, you are now responsible for the lice of death that you have caused because you have consumed water to buy your avocado. And you're just like, wait, What? And they show you all these examples in the show uh, of like how, you, how these crazy scores, almonds are another thing too, almonds consume, uh, almond milk consumes an incredible amount of water, more water than, than, than we need, that there are other better, anyways, there's all these systems of balances that every single action you take is either good or bad based on the, the ripple of repercussions that you, it's ridiculous, 
right? And so I'm not going to spoil the rest of the show, but, but if you watch the show, you find out that based on this scoring system of good and bad, no one can enter the good place. Literally no one. And, and, and they find out that I think after like 200 B, B, AD or something like that, no one has, has made it to the good place. Everybody else has gone to hell because there's a system of, of bad scores, right? And Isaiah says something, something that's important. Because we find out that if we really, if, if it were a scaling system, that if you weighed your bad deeds compared to your good deeds, your bad deeds would be too monumental, too huge to overcome or to be overcome by the amount of good deeds. And Isaiah says something similar, verse 64, uh, chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah says this, all of us have become like one who is unclean spiritually. He says all of our righteous acts, all of our good deeds are just like filthy rags, he says. And the word that Isaiah uses here for filthy implies spiritual impurity, a connection to blood and to death, which causes separation from God. Isaiah says, listen, our hearts are not good by nature. Even the good deeds that we do are just like filthy rags when we compare it to the goodness that is actually God. And so we read these verses in Ezekiel. Here, Ezekiel chapter 18, oh, the righteous man will live because of his righteous deed, the wicked man will die because of his wicked deeds. And we may be tempted to think that life or salvation is based on righteous acts. It says it, right? A righteous person receives life because of their righteousness, etc. And a person who then turns from good and acts evil is punished, while a person who turns from evil and acts good is rewarded with life. And we might be tempted to think, oh, this is verses about salvation by works. But if we don't pay attention to what God is actually saying, then we can turn it into something like that. But what God is really saying, what he's trying to portray, what he's trying to set an example for for these people is that salvation is not earned by good deeds and salvation is not lost by bad deeds. God is trying to say salvation is not a matter of what you're doing, but of how you're choosing to live. This is important. Salvation is not a matter of what you're doing, but how you're choosing to live. It sounds contradictory, but there's a subtle difference. What we do is the measure and weight of our actions. How we choose to live is, is measured by who we are choosing to be. When we choose to be in relationship with God, we will come to repentance over the ways that we have acted that don't line up with God's law of love and selfless love. You guys following so far? When we choose to be in genuine relationship with God, we learn to love him and to love our neighbors, not out of obligation, not because God says that we have to, not because we do it to earn our salvation, but rather we love God and people out of an outflow of God's love inside of us. Somebody, somebody say something. Are you guys like listening to that? It's not about what we do. It's about God's love flowing out of us. But the opposite is true. When we choose to break relationship with God, when we live in willful disobedience of his law of love, choosing to do wrong continually, deliberately, with no desire for repentance, that's what God is referring to here about wickedness. This comes out of our separation from God, and separation from God is separation from the source of life. Separating from the source of life leads to what? It can't lead to anything else. 
And so no matter how saintly we act on earth, life isn't determined or salvation isn't determined by our good deeds. No deeds, good or bad, can cause you to win or lose salvation. Rather, salvation is determined by God alone. Salvation is not determined by a balance of good and bad deeds, but rather by how we choose to live. Not what we do, how we choose to live, whether we enter into relationship with God or whether we separate from God. See, we're responsible for the choices that we make, not because good and bad deeds affect our salvation, but rather because what we do is a reflection of how near or far our hearts are from God. Did you hear that? That one's huge. It's not about what you do, because what you do is just an outflow of what you have inside of you. And so good deeds are just an outflow of Jesus residing in your hearts. And so salvation isn't about good deeds and bad deeds. It's about who's living here. It's about how you're choosing to live, whether you enter in relationship with God or not. And I love this, that that when we come to, to God seeking forgiveness, he says it here in Ezekiel 18, he wipes the slate clean as if we had never done anything bad in the first place. See, salvation isn't a scale. We're going to read the rest of the chapter here, finish it off. Verses 25 to 32. 25 says this, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sins, they will die for it because of the sin that they had committed. Again, read this into it, because of the way they had chosen to live their lives. But if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness, for they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all of the offenses they have committed and they turn away from them, that person will surely live, they will not die. Yet the Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways of how you choose to live, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent, turn away from all of your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Verse 31, rid yourself of all of the offenses you have committed, get a new heart and a new spirit. We read that in Ezekiel chapter 14 or 12, I believe. Why? And then he asks this, why will you die, people of Israel? Why choose death? The path is before you. Verse 32, and this is my favorite part. Verse 32, he says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent and live. Now, sometimes we feel that this whole clean slate thing isn't fair. The Israelites certainly thought that. We love a clean slate when it's in regards to our own sins. We love the idea of like, yeah, God, don't count anything I did wrong against me, right? Forgive me if it's the, if it's the new time. But, but we, we don't like it so much when it comes to judgment, right? We love that our records of sins are forgiven, aren't held against us. But when we come to repentance for something new, we say, God, remember all the good things I did back then? Don't count this one thing against me because of all the good things I've done back then. But part of the reason if we do think it's unfair. Part of the reason that I believe that we may not think is unfair is because our, and that our previous deeds, good deeds are forgotten when we mess up is because we, we really, we value ourselves as more righteous than we truly are. We don't believe the words of Isaiah that says even our good deeds are like filthy rags. You see, we fail, we often fail to understand the full gravity of our sins. If life really were a scale system, 
We might be surprised to learn that not a single person that has ever lived on this earth, not a single human being could ever be worthy of salvation. Every single person, Paul says, has fallen short of God's glory and is fully unworthy of the perfect life that God wants us to live. But again, and this is the beautiful thing of the story, it's not about our worthiness. It's not about our worthiness. Salvation is not by our merits, but by the sacrifice of Jesus and the unconditional, unconditional forgiveness of the cross. Here's our final lesson for today. God delights in forgiveness. God delights in forgiveness. You see, God's ways of forgiveness, it actually, it isn't fair. If you think it's not fair, you're right, it isn't fair. Sin leads to death. The consequence of any sin is death. That's what sin is. It's, sin is separation from God. God is life. You guys following the logic, right? Here's the math. God is life. You separate from life. What does that leave you with? Death. Sin can only lead to death. For things to be truly objectively fair, we should be dead the moment we mess up. That would be actual, true, objective fairness. But instead of instant death, we are given the opportunity to repent. We're not lost the moment that we sin. God grants us time and time and time to come to repentance. And in verse 32, I love that he says that he says, I take no no pleasure in the death of anyone. God doesn't want to see anybody die in sin. God is patient, infinitely patient, waiting for every single one of us to come to repentance. God wants every single one of his children to find forgiveness and live. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. But you see, what's, what's amazing about the unfairness of forgiveness is that this unfairness is swung in our favor. You see, God came in the personhood of Jesus to take on our sins, to die in our place, to remove that guilt so that we could be declared righteous even though we aren't. See, true fairness would be for everybody to perish because of their sins the instant that they sin. But God's love accepts the death of Jesus in our place and is ready, ready with forgiveness the moment that we fall. And what's beautiful is that we don't have to make it up to God with good deeds. We don't have to make up these, oh, I've done, all, I've done X amount of bad things, so I've got to do X amount of good things to counter. That's not how it works. We don't have to make it up to God with good deeds. We just need to come with a repentant heart and forgiveness is ours. That's all that it takes. See, in these verses, God isn't talking about a righteous person making one single mistake. This death and life business isn't a one-strike system. God is talking about a life, a whole life that is characterized by turning back to him even after we make mistakes. Proverbs says this, says the righteous man falls seven times but he gets back up eight. That's what righteousness is. It isn't living perfectly. It isn't doing everything absolutely right. Righteousness is the willingness to acknowledge that we've done wrong and to come to God for repentance. That's what righteousness is. And what I love about this is that that it's good news for us. It means that if we have just messed up, there is forgiveness for us. But it also means that if our life up until this point has been characterized by serving ourselves instead of serving God, 
If our life up until this point has been full of wrong choices and sin, that there is still forgiveness available. God says all the unrighteous deeds that the person had committed will not be remembered when they come for repentance. See, whatever you've heard in the past about a judgmental and angry God, it simply isn't true. God doesn't take pleasure in seeing anyone die from their sins, or rather, God delights in forgiveness. And forgiveness comes when we are willing to come clean about our sins and take responsibility. See, the Israelites believed that their current predicament was because of corporate guilt, as if their sins, the sins of their parents were coming down on them. But really, it was just an excuse to not honestly look at themselves and see how their own hearts were actually far from God. And we need to, we need to stop with those excuses, with the finger pointing, with the blame casting. Our choices are our own. And until we come to realize that, we won't be able to move our hearts into a place of repentance. You see, there is healing in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is redemption in Jesus. But we only access it when we stop trying to cover things up and take responsibility. And you see, God is willing to forgive as if we had never sinned before. Salvation isn't a scale. No matter how good or loving we are, our good deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. When we compare them to God's righteousness, it's like nothing. We have no footing to boast in our good deeds because neither good nor bad deeds affects salvation that is available in Jesus. This is because salvation, again, it isn't about what we do. Salvation is about who we know. Good deeds and bad deeds are really just a reflection of where our heart is in relation to God. So stop trying to focus on earning heaven through what you do. Focus on building a committed and trusting relationship with God. Then your attitudes and actions will reflect that relationship. Stop trying to earn it by, by, by keeping the Sabbath properly and by staying away from stealing and lying and all those other things. Yes, those are important things, but those, those things don't come before salvation. Salvation comes, Jesus enters into our hearts, and he makes it possible for us to do good. Because good deeds are not a reflection of us. Good deeds are just a reflection out of the goodness of God living and dwelling and moving and inspiring and transforming our hearts. And praise God that salvation isn't a scale that it isn't about works, because if it were, no human could ever earn salvation. We receive salvation solely on the merit of the sacrifice of Jesus that he made on the cross on our behalf. Through his death, our guilt is removed. Through his resurrection, we are promised life eternal. And God loves every one of us, and, and he wants us to live. That's why God doesn't take pleasure in punishment, but rather God delights in forgiveness. You see, the gospel at its heart is really unfair because it declares the guilty innocent. We are indeed guilty. We've done wrong, but through Jesus, our guilt is gone. We can come to God. We can find forgiveness through repentance and enter into this newness of life. You see, God is patient. God is not wanting any one of us to be lost to sin, but our personal salvation depends on whether we accept the gift of Jesus. He'll never force it on us. And as we draw closer to God, as we come into better, stronger relationship, as we trust him more, our hearts begin to change. And our lives begin to better reflect the selfless love 
of Jesus. It's not deeds and Jesus first. It's Jesus first. First and always. But I love this. Even when we mess up, God is ready with forgiveness. He's sitting on the edge of his seat ready with forgiveness. Today and every day, forgiveness is yours. Amen.